You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hello, everyone, and welcome to season two of The Guidepost. We are coming up on 100 episodes. Thank all of y'all for listening. I still don't know why you do. Um, And we are coming up on the holidays. And, you know, everyone else in the world is kind of like, hey, stuff's winding down for the holidays. And, and, you know, we're going to eat turkey and this is going to be great. And anyone in our world is like, oh, my God what's going on there's so much going on between now and the end of the year on capitol hill it's kind of like you start pressing the freak out button because there's not going to be enough time to kind of get everything done that needs to be done and you know a lot of times we on this podcast we talk about regional or state issues like striped bass or redfish or you know whatever and today we're super fortunate um to have a couple of our friends from the national wildlife federation here uh to talk about uh in particular two bills that all of a sudden have life to them um that are really really good for fishermen for saltwater fishermen for freshwater fishermen for hunters for anyone who kind of cares about the outdoors and conservation and habitat and all this kind of all this kind of stuff that we preach all the time. So we're real lucky that we were able to catch these two folks because um, it is Monday before Thanksgiving and everyone's kind of trying to rush out of town, be with their families, do their stuff. And I was able to finagle uh, Zach Cockrum and Jesse Ritter from National Wildlife Federation to come in here and educate all of us on this important legislation and what it could do to help us out uh, as outdoors people. So Jesse and Zach, thanks for being here. And uh, and Jesse, we're going to go with you first because I know Zach and I'm going to limit what he says because I know Zach. I'm just kidding, Zach. I love you, man. That's smart. So, That's smart Jesse, you know. <laughs> Jesse, tell us a little bit about yourself. And um and we'll get into the bills in a second once Zach introduces himself. But how'd you how'd you uh how'd you end up at National Wildlife Federation working on all this awesome outdoors habitat, fish hunting, all this kind of stuff? Yeah, well well first thanks, Tony. It's great to be here. Um a great way to spend a Monday before a holiday. Um so I I've been at the National Wildlife Federation now for coming up on eight years. Um my work at NWF is on basically anything that uh, is in that that Venn diagram overlap between water and and policy work. And so I work on everything from freshwater ecosystems to you know coastal resilience, our coastal ecosystems and habitats, to um, our offshore arena, um, our marine ecosystems. And I actually came to this work really from my first love, which was actually ocean policy work. I studied at the Duke Nicholas Institute um, out on the coast in Beaufort, North Carolina. I was really interested in the time, um, I still am, but at the time really focused on fisheries policy uh, as well as kind of coastal resilience policy. Um, Prior to that, I got a degree in zoology from NC State University 
And despite having degrees from NC State and Duke University, I now live in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which is very confusing for me because everyone's wearing the wrong colors around me. <laughs> so, so that's kind of my. Oh, you, man, you, listen, you just twanged <laughs> my nerve. I look. <laughs> I bleed orange if you cut me, right? Tennessee. Uh, okay. And I, I am, I have not gotten over Saturday. It will be years until I get <laughs> over Saturday to have some two-bit crap team like South Carolina beat us and our Heisman hopeful to destroy his knee in the process. It's like, it's like you look up at the sky and you're like, God, why do you hate me? Like, I don't, I don't understand, but like at least, you know, look, I don't know. I, I'm probably not going to talk about college football anymore. My my <laughs> doctor has advised me not to discuss it, at least until March or April. But it's unfortunate you live at Ch in Chapel Hill with the with NC State. I kind of like NC State a little bit. Um, Go Wolfpack. <laughs> do not so much. Um, but so you've been with NWF for eight years. That's right. Doing everything water related you have a lot of experience in ocean policy um are are you a, are you a fisherman are you uh do you do you enjoy getting out i'm asking you this because man you know you're the type of person that we need to take fishing right you need to get you need to get out there and get your hands get your hands you know dirty on these fish and kind of see what see everything that you're working for do you like fishing jesse yeah. You know, I've only gone maybe maybe four or five times um, recreational fishing, but I love being out on boats, and I'd love to do it more. So uh, I welcome any opportunity when there you go, there you go. I haven't asked Zach fishing yet, um, for obvious reasons. But Zach, I'm kidding, buddy. <laughs> Zach, what's your role at NWF? And and I know you spent some time at TU and have a pretty uh, pretty substantial, you know background and wildlife and the outdoors and fishing so let's let's let the listeners learn about you a little bit now sure thanks tony and, and thanks for having us today really appreciate uh the opportunity to talk to you and your audience about some important conservation issues um so i'm zach cockrum i'm senior director of ocean sustainability at nwf uh and it's a relatively new role uh, as the organization is, is trying to leverage more of our expertise we can talk about what our affiliates are and what nwf is uh, down the line, but we have great relationships with state-based organizations all across the country um, that are our first partners, a, a lot of uh, which are deeply engaged in uh, fisheries-related issues and ocean issues. And so we're, we're trying to leverage more of that in this really important space. So yeah, um, my background, uh, this is actually my second stint at National Wildlife Federation. Uh, I, I right out of college, moved to DC to work on their field team working on climate change and engaging hunters and anglers in that. Uh, and then I worked for Trout Unlimited in Washington, D.C. for uh, a little over five years lobbying on the Hill, a short stint at a, a communications consultant consulting firm where I actually work with Jesse from time to time on some uh, Gulf of Mexico restoration work. Uh, and then totally burned out on D.C. and, and moved to the woods of Vermont about uh, six years ago. Um, and the, the, uh, most of my work at National Wildlife Federation the second time around has been working with affiliates in the Northeast. Um, but we got involved on some important fights around Menhaden, around horseshoe crabs, um, a little bit on, uh, Atlantic herring. And, um, you know, we've, we've really started to get more involved in, in those issues that are all, um, important 
at the intersection of supporting wildlife and supporting recreational fishing. And I think that's a real sweet spot for the Federation as an organization is finding these issues where you stand to benefit um, both outdoor users, uh, recreational anglers, and wildlife. And there are numerous places where you can do both and, and don't have to um, find opposition, but can really lock arms and, and work together to benefit everybody. As, you know, as someone who's been doing this like forever and a day, I know that may come as a shock to everyone who can't see me uh, in my I kind of I kind of look like a silverback gorilla at this point in my life, and I'm embracing it. Um, you know, I don't think there's enough hair dye in the world to uh, to make me go back to having one uniform color on the top of my head, what's left of it and in, in, in my face. Um, but I think, the you know, there's been a kind of like a really interesting turn of events in like the last five or six years. And as much as I think we all collectively hate the bad aspects of social media, I think anglers, conservationists, outdoors people have really gotten an opportunity to be educated on these different platforms, whether it's a podcast like this or, you know, Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever. Um, you know, the, I think the average knowledge level of an outdoor enthusiast has uh, has gone up a couple of rungs on the ladder, which is really huge. Um, you know, the, the beginning of my career, it was just, it was it was fighting against like basically like old wives tales and like these crazy yarns that people would spin in a tackle shop and you're like you're getting your information from a guy behind a register in a tackle shop like that's not where you should be getting your information from you need to be getting it from the professionals who work on it every day uh ergo um you two folks are sitting sitting on the podcast with me so i know we're going to talk about the rise act um and and that is that is going to zero in on offshore wind development and renewable energy and how uh, the revenues from that can benefit um, anglers and scientists and, and all sorts of people on the coast. And we'll get into that in a second. But I really wanted to talk about Rawa first, because I know NWF has been working on that for a while. Uh, and and y'all have certainly been one of the leaders uh, on the charge on that. And, uh, and I think I'm just going to kind of hand it over to Jesse um, to talk about Rawa for a second. Um, what it, you know, an intro to our listeners on R Rawa is, and then we can kind of, we can figure out like how this thing can move during this lame duck session after the midterms and why it's so imperative that it gets done. So Jesse, I'm gonna hand it over to you. Uh, teach us about Rawa and uh, and the differences that it can make for all of us, uh, positive differences. Yeah, and Tony, I'm actually gonna I'm gonna hand it to Zach because he's gonna do a better job than I would. But one thing I do I will say about Rawa just up front is that you know the, the model here is all about putting resources in the hands of states, of tribes, of folks who can actually. Uh, who interact regularly, who live with, who who are stewards of resources in their states or in their tribal areas, and who who know what needs to happen, and and really equipping and providing the resources we need to the folks on the ground to do the work that needs to happen. But and that's one of the things that I think is so important about this bill and why it's become so um, popular on Capitol Hill and across the nation. But Zach, let me turn it over to you to give a, a more thorough overview. 
Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. So yeah, RAWA is Recovering America's Wildlife Act. Um, and the this has been something that has shown up in one form or another for, geez, two or three decades now about trying to figure out a way to substantially increase the resources available to state wildlife agencies and their partners to address, um, you know, the ongoing decline of wildlife species. So uh, Recovering America's Wildlife Act is uh, specifically targeted at what we call non-game species. So a lot of um, fish and game conservation is funded by hunting and fishing licenses in states. Uh, and th that is really important. And we strongly support all of that. But a lot of that money is specifically used to restore or maintain fish and game populations. And meanwhile, you have a number of species that are, um, you know, either at risk for extinction, uh, listed on the Endangered Species Act uh, as threatened or endangered, or just species that are of concern in a state. They don't have to necessarily be listed. They, they may be an iconic species for a state. Uh, and, and the resources to uh, restore habitat, to do all the conservation work for those species are, are fairly limited. So Recovering America's Wildlife Act would give $1.4 billion back to states and tribes it's funded by um, unallocated environmental fines and penalties for companies that, you know, spill oil spill or have, you know, any other uh, damage to the environment. They pay federal fines that are going into the general treasury right now. And the idea is to give these back to states and tribes to invest in um, already identified conservation strategies. So you have these things called state wildlife action plans where each state lists out all the species that they are concerned about, that they're working on from a habitat and conservation perspective. Uh, those are um, connected back to the federal government. And the RAWA would, would funnel resources into those existing plans. Um, and one point I would make too is when we talk about non-game versus game, it, it, it's sort of, yeah, you're focused in on a non-game species. You might be restoring a salt marsh to benefit, you know, a, a, a shorebird that needs that habitat. But as people that spend time fishing in salt marshes, it doesn't matter if you're restoring that salt marsh for a bird, other species are going to benefit from it. So uh, sometimes that distinction, while it may change the strategy of how we do our conservation work, at the end of the day, anytime you're doing conservation and restoration of habitat, multiple species will benefit. And if game fish are benefiting from that restoration, then recreational anglers are too. So uh, because of that, a number of hunting and fishing organizations have been really st strong supporters of RAWA, even though it's not specifically to go to uh, game conservation and restoration. And it's one of those things where it's very clear that a, that a rising tide lifts all boats in the conservation space. Uh, and that's why there's so much support for RAWA. It's, you know, to find bipartisan legislation these days uh, and strongly bipartisan uh, legislation, I, I don't think will surprise too many listeners that, that there's not a whole lot of options out there. And this is something that really has attracted tremendous support from both sides of the aisle uh, because it's a really common sense approach to restoring our wildlife populations. That's been a big beef of mine um, last six or seven years, because this is not partisan stuff, right? I mean, there's plenty of partisan stuff. The world is divided. We all know that we don't have to bang that drum, but I mean, I don't know. 
Uh, I've been doing this long enough to where it seems like everyone cares about it that you talk to. And you don't have to turn it into a dumpster fire, right? It just doesn't have to be that way. And it's one of the few things left on the table that it's like everyone agrees on this. Shouldn't we shouldn't we move forward in a in a positive path if if there we can find like a handful of things that we agree on? You don't have to turn it into, you know, a, a, no one has to turn this into a mudslinging match. Um you know, Zach, and, and we, uh, you talked about like the mitigation funds for, you know, something happens and, and somebody has to pay, you know, fines or restoration funds. And back in the day, we were able to remove a series of dams on the, uh, on the Patapsco River, uh, which is the river that creates kind of Baltimore Harbor. Um, some of them, you know, so, so the, the one that, I remember the most was Bloaty Dam. And it was actually a it was actually a, a dangerous the way the dam it, it didn't do anything anymore. And and the way the dam was made created like an undercurrent and and people would die there every year. They would drown. And it was it was a mess. And um and they actually had to reroute the Patapsco River around the dam, blow the dam up. Uh, and then, and then, you know, put the flow back where it should have been. And we actually took the rubble from the dam and made a reef out in Baltimore Harbor and, you know, tried to do everything right. And within, I think it was six months, they recorded the first river herring coming back up the river to spawn. And you're like, the dam's been there for a hundred years. You know, nature can find a way if you just let nature find a way. And I think, you know, not to say in that raw was going to blow up dams or anything like that, but a river herring isn't a game fish probably doesn't get the attention it deserves. And, uh, and just doing something real simple like that benefits the whole ecosystem. Right. So I think if you bring whatever species back or shine some light on it and bring some attention to it, what it really does is is normalize the ecosystem and that benefits everything right that's i think that's the story behind this legislation so zach i guess i'll since both of these pieces of legislation kind of have the same path forward potentially but between now and the end of the year that's an accurate statement right that that they kind of both of them have that same path forward. Yeah, I mean, appropriations I could, process. I would. I, Jesse works more closely with the Hill, so I, I would defer to her on this. And I would just, you know, echoing what you're saying, or the inverse of what I was saying earlier, that um, it, it's sometimes difficult to find extremely bipartisan legislation. It is also not shocking that sometimes it's difficult to pass common sense legislation. Uh, but we're at a moment here where we're at the end of one Congress heading into a new Congress. Uh, and there's potential funding bills that need to be passed by the end of this Congress. And so um, both RAWA and RISE are in a place where, uh, it, it, like many other pieces of legislation that are not conservation related to, I'm sure that many people are jockeying to try to get their priorities attached to this funding bill. And that's so why. That's, so that is because we can get into that after yeah. we discuss RISE. Yeah. But both of these have generally the same path forward and they're, I guess probably two or three weeks ago, 
maybe people didn't see a path forward for either pieces of these of legislation and now that path is kind of opening up and this is why we're talking about it so instead of getting into that path um so this is not any extra burden on the taxpayers right zach rawa this is taking mitigation money and applying it to funds to help out certain species of whatever that kind of don't get the attention they deserve because you know we're the funding sources to help our natural resources kind of don't apply to them so this would this would kind of breathe life Rawa would kind of breathe life into kind of like a holistic ecosystem approach for things that have been not front of mind. Yes, absolutely. And um, I think it, it, it is a, there's been a lot of conversations about how best to fund this and the idea to use these unallocated uh, natural resource violation fines is the approach that has really gotten a lot of traction uh, recently. Um, and, you know, I think there's a lot of times where, when you take money out of the the general account of the treasury, um, at, there's some concern on the Hill about what that means for the their their bigger budget picture. But I think uh, in this case, we're making the very clear case that fines paid for natural in, uh, natural resources impacts should go back to conserve and restore wildlife populations. It's, yeah. It's so my point strict, is, a lot of people yeah. listening to this, you know, look, man, as a dad and everything else i'm i'm looking at christmas and i'm not pointing fingers at anyone or anything but stuff is just more expensive right now and i think everyone's kind of tackling you know kind of the same realities that we're all living in and this is not an extra burden on us citizens this is taking mitigation money and applying it directly to issues that we have this is not going to add an extra burden i just want to make that real clear because there's Absolutely. a certain there's a certain part of the population that would not support anything that that gave more of our you know taxes yeah, the money, the money is there more taxes for us if the, the, yeah, what exactly. we're saying is the money is there yeah let's put it's it to use in the right so that is a perfect segue see i'm not as dumb as i look <laughs> that is a perfect segue to talk about the rise act um and so we you know the guides association works uh with offshore wind um a little bit and um you know our, i guess our position on it real simply is that it's coming and no matter how you feel about it it is coming so you better be in the conversation right? If you're not at the table, you're part of the menu. Uh, and that's kind of how we feel about it. And, um, and there's obviously been some real positive things that we've been able to do, like our false albacore tagging project, uh, working with the wind developers. And that's kind of how we see our niche is creating new science for a species like false albacore that doesn't get the attention it deserves an incredibly data poor species. And and letting these wind developers help fund this science so we have a better understanding of what's going on with these species that are really important to us. And that's kind of the perfect partnership that we see. 
Um, not being a win patsy, not, not, you know, everything's rah, rah, every time somebody says offshore wind, but kind of being like a real partner that holds them accountable, um, but also provides them a path to, uh, to help out with science for species that are really important to our guides and our members. And then along comes the RISE Act from uh, Senator Whitehouse in Rhode Island. Um, and it's kind of what we did with the Albi project on a massive scale and making it a law. And, and Jesse, with that, yeah. tell us about the RISE Act and what it could do uh, for, you know, habitat, coastal communities, fishermen, whole nine yards. Yeah, thanks, Tony. Um, so, so the RISE Act, Reinvesting in America's Shoreline Ecosystems and Economies, it's RISE with two E's at the end. This is a piece of legislation that has now been introduced in both chambers of Congress on a bipartisan basis in both chambers of Congress, um, notably with members representing, you know, not only all uh, of our coastal, all of our coastlines, our coastal areas, but we also have inland members, you know, supporting this legislation. The crux of what the RISE Act tries to do is increase the resources available for us to tackle some of our challenges related to the resilience of our coastlines and our coastal ecosystems. It provides additional resources for us to uh, increase the resilience of our coastal infrastructure, coastal communities, to restore habitats, to do the science that's so, that's so critically needed, especially as we are confronting uh, changing conditions in our oceans and changes related to changing uses of our oceans. And so it's really an opportunity to capture and harness resources for those, those needs. You know, I think one thing that um, really resonates with me here, we, we know that, um, you know, the impacts of a changing climate are affecting every corner of our country, but coastal, coastal communities, our coastlines are really experiencing some particularly unique challenges. Uh, you know, we have more frequent flooding, we have more frequent and intense hurricanes, and the science is showing us that that's only going to continue. Those storms are going to become more frequent and stronger when they do happen. We have uh, coastal erosion rates increasing. We have sea level rise rates accelerating. The 2022 projections kind of blow my mind a little bit from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. We're likely to see uh, about two feet of sea level rise along our U.S. coastlines on average between 2020 and 2021 under current scenarios. And without any future curbing of emissions, those numbers go up to as much as seven feet by the end of the century. So you think about that, someone born today within their lifespan, we could see seven feet of additional sea level rise along our coastlines. And so just the- I want you, I want you to know my house is exactly eight feet. Oh gosh! Well, you're above uh, above sea level, dude. I'm waterfront. Yeah, I mean, imagine. Told my wife this was a good investment. (laughs) She said I was crazy. The house needed too much work. I need you to send me the link to that because I I'm building a dock tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) I may be the only person who benefits from this, but it just so happens I am eight feet above sea level. But please continue. So we can buy. <laughs> it may work out for me. Everyone else, you're screwed. So please, <laughs> please continue, Jesse. So we are we are looking at really dramatically different coastlines in our future, and you know the reality is is this is going to be expensive, and there's going to be a lot of 
loss of property and a lot of potential loss of life. And so this is a really, this is a really serious um, uh, proposition in front of us adapting to these changes. The reality is too, that a lot of these changes to our system are already baked in. So we know we're gonna see some of the sea level rise. We know we're gonna see some of these challenges, increased storms, flooding, um, no matter what happens with our broader uh, efforts to address the climate crisis. And so because of that, having the resources available now as soon as possible for that adaptation and to confront what is for, for many, many communities really an existential crisis um, is super important. Um, and it's it's good fiscal policy. You know, we know that dollars spent up front now save many dollars on the back end later. Um, and it's important for uh, facilitating the adaptation not only of our human communities, which is obviously critical, but also our ecosystems, right? So the effects of climate change, um, it's affecting our fisheries. We know this. It's affecting the health of a lot of the very coastal habitats that could provide some buffering for us when we're confronting these storms and these floods. And so, um, you know, it's really just just the, the dynamic nature of our coastlines is such that um, they are resilient. We talked earlier about how nature can adapt, nature is resilient, but the challenges, the challenges ahead for our coastal areas are really, really significant. So, so, so with that in mind, the RISE Act seeks to really increase the resources available to confront these challenges. And it does that through a couple of different mechanisms. First, it sets up a new revenue sharing program for future offshore wind uh, leasing um, and offshore wind energy production in the U.S. So it follows a model that was actually set in the Gulf of Mexico Energy Security Act. This was a law passed in the, in the 2000s that basically captured uh, oil and gas revenues and sent it back to uh, Gulf of Mexico producing states for that money to be used for the purposes of uh, hurricane protection, ecosystem restoration, implementing uh, state coastal plans, for example, takes that same model and applies it now to offshore wind leasing. Um, the end result will be that we're capturing a lot of the money generated by this new budding industry and sending it actually back to adjacent states so that they can undertake a lot of these, these very activities we're talking about. Um, it also sets aside a percentage that would flow to something called the National Ocean and Coastal Security Fund. And this is a fund that will benefit all coastal states, including Great Lakes states. So this isn't just, if you're a state hosting offshore wind, you, you stand to benefit from the RISE Act. All coastal states stand to benefit from the RISE Act because of this uh, provision that will actually send 12.5% of offshore wind resources to this broader fund. And I can get- And that's, Jesse, that's that. the same template, right? Um, with- Gulf of Mexico, you mentioned Gomesa, um, but there's also the Land and Water Conservation Fund, right? So That's is, exactly is that the, right. just for our listeners, I think maybe some of them have heard about that before. So this is, yep. this is almost a mirror image of that, that oil money funded mm -hmm. that Land and Water Conservation Fund, correct? That's right. Twelve. So where the rubber meets the road on that for anyone listening to this is, you know, that fund was raided all the time. And I remember seeing articles a couple of years ago of like the, the plumbing system at Yellowstone National Park was failing because there was a backlog of a bazillion years of, you know, basic maintenance that was not being taken care of. 
And then we passed the Great American Outdoors Act, and that refunded um, that that fund. And then all of a sudden, that backlog can start getting taken care of. And it even went so far as like, you know, if when you take your your kids to play on the you know little t-ball field or a community swimming pool or you know something that that money that that facility part of that money came from this conservation fund so it's not just like it's not just like outdoors people who are benefiting from this it's visitors it's hikers it's bird watchers i mean it's to 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 keep all of our national park system to running and community ball fields and, and introducing your kids to just anything outdoors. So it's really exciting to me that this rise act is taking that template and expanding on it for this wind, uh, the money that the that the that the the wind uh, developers are going to be generating, because you know I don't I don't know about you you two, but every time I ask something from a fisheries manager, the first thing that they say to me is there's no budget, right? And if this, you know, there's so much that we need, so much that we don't understand, and when we say that like fishery science is the best available science, they ain't kidding right? This is not physics, right? There are not universal laws of, of, of nature that we can apply to that. Counting fish is really hard. Um, it's not like counting trees, right? Like you, they swim, they have fins and they move around and we don't know what's going on. And then you have death by a thousand cuts by how our ecosystem is changing, habitat loss, dirty water, you know, all of these things. And every fisherman kind of has the one thing that they want to zero in on and say, this is the silver bullet. This is the one thing. If we could fix this, everything could get better. And that's just not true. There is no silver bullet. If there was, somebody would have figured it out by now. But the one thing that we can do, I guess the Guides Association opinion, opinion on all of this is pretty simple. We know that all this stuff is going on. It's not, it's not, it's irrefutable. Okay. There's, there's a lot of stuff going on. It's happening pretty fast and we don't understand it. It's, and it's not because we're stupid. It's because there's not enough funds dedicated to getting teams of people working on this at the pace that things are changing. So kind of the way that we view this is, this is a great measure to at least play catch up and to start understanding these things. And in between now and then, when we actually understand it, we should probably take a real precautionary resource, resource first approach to managing our coastal resources until we can kind of catch up, hopefully with this funding <laughs> and really kind of, you know, because you talk to like the NOAA labs in the Chesapeake Bay, and they're doing a lot of good work to understand these impacts in the Chesapeake Bay. And if it's impacting the, the holding capacity of the Chesapeake Bay, and you'll hear people say, you know, well, I believe this, or I believe that, or this is what I heard. But the reality is the news from the folks at the NOAA, the NOAA office in the Chesapeake Bay is it's going to be 10 years before they can actually come out with science that says this is what we're dealing with. 
So what do we do between now and 10 years from now? Well, we're really precautionary, number one. And number two, we try to get more funds to them to shorten that timeline. So did I did I miss anything on that, Jesse? Or am I Jesse's looking at me? Y'all can't see. She's like, my God, he isn't as dumb as I thought he was when we were talking before the podcast and he was saying all these crazy stories. I was like, she's like, holy shit, what did I get myself into? And then she's like, who is this person talking right now? You see it in her eyes, right? I mean, y'all can't see this because like nobody wants to see me on video. Zach, Jesse, not so bad at all. Me. You don't want to see me on video. Uh, there'll just be a black screen if we ever go to video. But Jesse, I mean, have I have I kind of touched on that? Like, you know, what are what are the the there's the revenue sharing, there's the sharing of the of the sales of the leases. So we're not talking about like a one and done thing. We're talking about as this industry continues to grow and develop, we're talking about a fund that is actually going to grow and develop with it that we can rely on in perpetuity to help us with all the problems that we have. Right? I mean, that's, I mean, that's right. And, and in fact, the, the Rise Act with, with the wind goes retroactive to lease sales from all of 2022, meaning we'll capture the very significant revenue that came from the lease sales and the New York fight and the Carolina Long Bay uh, sales. So, so that's, you know, that's hopefully, you know, resources right away. And then as the industry continues to grow a steady stream thereafter, um, and, um, you know, and it's, and it's resources, as we're saying, for these science needs and also for some of the, the work that we inevitably know we have to do, the habitat restoration work, the, in, the res resilience of our, our coastal infrastructure. But Zach, you know, you may have some perspective here, too, having worked on the offshore wind side of things. Yeah, I mean, to, to put a number on it, it it's the uh, New York Bite auction alone um, for a handful of lease areas uh, between New York and New Jersey offshore. That those lease areas generated um, nearly four and a half billion dollars. Uh, so that's a really significant amount of money that could go to ecosystem restoration, coastal resilience, and monitoring and mitigate mitigation of impacts from offshore wind. I mean, we're National Wildlife Federation. We're uh, really strong supporters of responsibly developed offshore wind power. But we know there are going to be impacts, uh, and we also know we don't know what some of those impacts are going to be yet. So it's incredibly important that even while we understand that offshore wind power is a badly needed solution to the climate crisis, uh, that we are uh, proceeding carefully and that we are monitoring impacts, particularly as the industry scales up and you go from you know a few dozen to hundreds of these things out there. Um, so it's also consistent. I think with the philosophy that, you know, if you're uh, potentially harming the ecosystem, um, that some portion uh, of that responsibility to mitigate and monitor falls back to um, the, the industry. So this is a really cooperative uh, approach to solving some of those problems. And this same, we're not, we're not reinventing the wheel here. This is the same thing that's been going on in the Gulf forever. Right. I mean, this is it's the exact same thing. And there has been. I mean, look, uh, you know, uh, everyone, everyone loves to complain, but that that money has gone to some pretty good. Pretty good sources, uh, pretty good uses um, to help out. And I know y'all work an awful lot. NWF does a ton of good work in the Gulf. And I think 
that money has helped y'all's work there. Am I, am I correct? I don't know exactly. No, I mean, absolutely. We've, um, we have a long history working on Gulf of Mexico restoration and it's worth noting that, um, particularly in the Mississippi river Delta where, you know, we have a, a immense land loss crisis that we're facing down there. The, the Gomesa dollars that have come in have been dedicated via a constitutional amendment to Louisiana's coastal trust fund, which is used to implement the coastal master plan and coastal master plan. If you've never, um, had an opportunity to become familiar with it. It is an impressive, it is an impressive feat. It's a really science-driven plan with extensive community involvement and engagement. And, and what it does is it outlines, based on our best available science and modeling, the projects we need to protect and restore Louisiana's coast, um, updated every six years uh, based on the newest you know, climate science projections. It's a, it's a really wonderful model. And I know other states around the nation are now working toward kind of a similar thing as we think about, you know, a broader grand design for, for smart coastal resilience and restoration work. And so certainly we've seen this money be put toward really important uses down in the Gulf. Um, one thing of note is the RISE Act actually does eliminate cap that is currently um, existing in the law that caps the amount of money that's shared back with those Gulf Coast states and with the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Um, Right now, it's three seventy-five million uh, every every fiscal year for producing states, and uh, one seventy one twenty-five, I believe, for land and water conservation fund. The Rise Act would eliminate that cap. Just just basically saying that you know if the if the revenue generated exceeds those numbers, there's not sort of this this arbitrary cap set where uh, the the producing states and the um, land and water conservation fund don't see the benefits of those dollars. And so we're really pleased with that piece of the Rise Act as well. So Jesse, I've I've made a career doing this, and I'm gonna I'm just gonna pull the pen and roll the grenade in the room because that's who I am. I can't. It's like a you ever see those uh, those videos where they put like a cupcake on a table and they you know have like a little hidden cam and they tell the kid not to eat the cupcake and walk out of the room. And there's like <laughs> yeah. one kid who's good and he's you know she, he or she's just staring at that cupcake and they don't eat it, and then the other kid in the room just jumps on it and devours it. I'm I'm the I'm the fat kid jumping on the cupcake, right? Be, like yeah. I can't help it. But like there's a, there's some consternation about that cap in in the in the DC community with some groups about that cap being removed. Mm-hmm. Because it you know I don't look. This the you know I guess what I have heard is there's there's a little bit of pushback on it because it it somehow supports you know, more, more, more fossil fuel drilling, you know, whatever they, whatever the problem is, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, let us have more money to fix these things. We got a lot of problems. You know, some people, some people uh, make, uh, get, take concrete and throw it in the water and say, that's restoration. That is not restoration. That is throwing concrete in the water. Um, Real restoration ain't cheap. I mean, just for a couple of acres, it is probably one of the most expensive construction projects that anyone can undertake um, with the planning and preparation and all the hurdles that you have to overcome. And this is some of the most expensive dollar work that can be done. And I have no, you know, maybe it's a, maybe it's my advancing age or a host of other things that I won't get into. 
uh, that rattle around in my head. But like, let's get this done. You know, let's let's get the money that we need uh, for this work because it is expensive and it is not it is not going away. And I think Jesse, you brought up a great point a little while back in the in the podcast that was, uh, you know, essentially like you're you're a lot better dealing with this now than when it gets worse, because when it gets worse, it's going to be exponentially harder to fix. So if you do this under the guise of you know we're being cautious and we're getting ahead of the curve on this because we're never ahead of the curve on anything. We're always behind the curve. You get ahead of the curve, it's going to cost a lot less in the long run. So, you know, let's get these dollars, use them for the right reasons, not have the not have the fund raided and paying for a $35,000 toilet seat at the Pentagon. Uh, let's get it. Let's get it to where it needs to go. Put it in the hands of the people who can make a difference. Uh, and and let's get this done. So speaking of let's getting it done, you have Rawa out there, and you have the Rise Act with the extra E. And these things have been on Capitol Hill for quite some time, but all of a sudden, about a week or two ago, someone started ringing the bell that there could be a path forward. This Congress before December 31st at midnight, that these things, you know, the term for a Congress like this after midterms for listeners is a lame duck, right? Because there's there's going to be change. People are leaving, new people are coming in, and not a lot normally gets done after these midterm elections. They refer to it as a lame duck Congress. So I guess people like us, we're kind of like, okay, after the elections, like, I'm going to have a nice Thanksgiving and nice holidays and nice Christmas and just go on cruise control because, man, we've gotten beaten up in the last couple of years and it's been a little crazy in D.C. And you kind of take that big breath and a sigh of relief and then all of a sudden your email explodes. And, uh, you know, it's ringing the bell. Here comes a fire alarm. Oh, no, all this stuff is moving now. And you're like, son of Big final I just wanted some turkey and dressing. Like I just, you know, and I was telling you all before the podcast, like my mom passed away in June. So like, if I don't cook, I don't eat. Right. So I'm like, I'm sitting there. I'm like, I'm going to the Amish market and I'm getting like the perfect turkey and I'm getting all this shit for my dressing. Cause it's not stuffing. If you're born in the South, it's dressing. Don't even say stuffing around me. That shit you pull out of a dog toy. That is that it is dressing. Like stop it with the stuffing. You poor souls who never had dressing. It's called dressing. Everything else is breadcrumb crap that you shouldn't eat. You need to eat dressing. So I'll get off that right now. So I'm 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 salivating over here, thinking about this wonderful meal that I'm gonna cook. And then I'm like, son of a bitch. Here we go. No rest for the wicked. Now we got this stuff to deal with. So much for a relaxing vacation. And here we are today. Jesse, where are we? 
how do we how do we make this happen so I can eat some turkey in peace? And uh, and and what's the path for these bills moving forward? Yeah, well, um, I feel you, Tony, on that. It's the end of the year. Can we all just kind of relax now? Not yet. Not quite yet. Um, so. So, I mean, you know, this always happens in a lame duck session. You sort of, the, the dynamics change based upon who might be in control of either chamber of Congress. But in short, there's a few vehicles left that are going to move um, because there's limited time to move things. <laughs> there's limited floor time, as they say, right? And so there's only so many things left that, that, that can go. And there's going to be a lot of things um, trying to get attached to those vehicles. Um, most important things are just, you know, widespread support, bipartisan support. Um, and so, you know, I think with that in mind, best thing folks can be doing right now is just reaching out to your, your Congress folk, reach out to your members of Congress and let them know that these are priorities. Let them know that you want to see them on a year in package. Let them know you want to get them done. Now is the time to get it done. Um, you know, a new Congress, um, things take a long time to ramp up and it's going to be a long time before we have a chance like this again. Uh, and so it's just it's an important moment to lean in um, and, and just let let the folks that represent you know that this is a priority. Yeah, and uh, you know to extend the holiday metaphor, this some of this must pass legislation at the end of the year. It's like people trying to hang ornaments on the Christmas tree. So you know you we could have an argument of you know is this a right way to legislate and um, you know should we be going down to the wire to pass really important policy. But the reality is that's how the sausage is made right now. Uh, and everybody's trying to hang their ornament on the tree. And so it's really important that uh, that things like RAWA and RISE get get on there. You know, we want to make sure that, uh, that you know, if anybody's going to stand to benefit from some of these funding decisions down the line, that it's conservation and uh, restoration and fish and wildlife that uh, will benefit from these funding decisions. And this is not, again, both of these pieces of legislation is not taxing on, not putting on any tax dollars. Uh, their funds are coming from either, you know, respectively for RISE, the wind developers or the lease sales. And for RAWA, it's mitigation money for people who messed up, you know, big companies and and, and made, a, made a mistake along the way and had to pay for it. Um, so this is not in any increased burden. It's a net positive. Um, you know, and I think uh, I think if if you go to Congress.gov, right? So if you just type in Rise Act or RAWA, it'll take you to Congress.gov, and you can see the text of the bill. Really easy. I mean, it's the first they take you five seconds, and then you can also see the sponsors and the co-sponsors. And um, man, there I'll tell you what, there's not a lot of legislation out there these days on congress.gov where you go down that co-sponsor list and you're like D-R-R-D-D-R-R-D-R. And it's, you got a lot of different folks signing on that maybe, you know, wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't join forces on, on, on other legislation. So it, it kind of, I think, I think collectively Congress sees the benefit of this long term um, for things that are uh, really important to uh, the people that elected them. And it doesn't really matter what letter is behind your name. And and man, let me tell you, that's refreshing. Um, I still remember, man, I guess I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember how many years ago it was. 
but we were sitting on Capitol Hill and there was like a Coast Guard funding bill. Mm-hmm. And it was, should have taken about five minutes. And then there was another, this is pre-COVID, you know, this is, this is actually when people like saw each other and stuff. And the, the, the Coast Guard legislation should have taken five minutes. And then we were, we were interested in the next bill. Uh, it was just funding the Coast Guard. Like, who doesn't want to fund the Coast Guard? And 45 minutes later, we were texting each other pictures of dumpster fires, like the GIF image where, like, the, the dumpster is going down the river and it's on fire that everyone's seen. And I looked at uh, someone that I worked with at the time, and I was like, holy Toledo. This is going to suck. And it's if this is any indication of what our lives are going to be like, our lives are going to suck because it's really going to be hard to get anything done. So while I'm not a huge proponent of sliding things into appropriations legislation, um, when you see bipartisan legislation like these two bills, that's okay to me. That's all right. Like, just get it done. And, and, you know, like Zach said, that's how the sausage is made these days. Um, you'd love to see the standalone bill pass on its own merit. But at this point, um, I don't really care if they slide it under the door uh, when nobody's looking. Like, just get the damn thing done. Um, so, you know, Jesse had mentioned, you know, uh, uh, contacting uh, your representatives to say that this is important legislation and you'd like like to see it passed. Um, I support that that statement. And it's it's pretty easy. Again, just, you know, just go to Congress.gov and and look at these two bills and you can see if your representative is supportive of it. And obviously you don't need to send the email at that juncture if they're a sponsor. But if they're not, a simple email to their office, and you can easily find their office uh, online as well. That'll be about another five-second search that says, I support Rise and Rawa and would appreciate it if you supported it as well. I'm one of your constituents. That'll go a really long way, believe it or not. I mean, we, we kind of advocate for this stuff all the time. Um, yeah, yeah. And but, Tony, I even add, I would even just jumping onto that, like, even if your member of Congress already supports it, right now, they're, they're under a lot of pressure. Thank you for your support. On a lot of different fronts. Yeah. Thank you for your support. And let's get this done this year. Right. Because, you know, there's, there's a lot of pressure on so many fronts and members are getting pulled in all different directions and we need, we need folks attention to get this stuff done right now. So I think either way, you know, that, that sort of outreach is always great. Hey, and on, on the, on the flip side of that coin, if you're, uh, if your elected official lost their election, they don't give a shit anymore. So just tell them, tell them to do it because you know what I mean? Like their email is going to get turned off in like 45 days anyway. So like, what the hell shoot for the moon? You know what I mean? Don't hesitate to email them either. They don't care anymore. Um, So Zach, you look like you wanted to say something, buddy. Yeah. I mean, I would just echo that. I mean, I I think um, back to the Christmas tree metaphor, there's every, every member of Congress co-sponsored, you know, dozens of pieces of legislation the last couple of years. Uh, And so then when it comes down to the wire and they have the opportunity to, you know, maybe advance one or two, uh, it it just does not hurt to elevate 
an, an issue again, even if they've indicated they've been supportive because it's supportive relative to what and what other opportunities there are out there. Uh, so making it clear that that um, this is a political winner for them and continuing to you know shore up that co-sponsorship. So if they're if they're new to it, absolutely introducing the legislation so they could come around and co-sponsor be supportive. But um, always uh, always good to thank and encourage anybody for their leadership on forward thinking legislation like this. Well, cool beans. Um, you know. Big thanks to both of y'all uh, for being on here. Um, it was a pleasure uh, to meet you, Jesse. This is the first time we've talked. Zach, um, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, sir. Um, I did not know you were going to be in D.C. Uh, for the holidays and leave your leave your woods of Vermont. So I, Zach is kind of a little insane. Um, I sent him a picture of that snow that Buffalo was going to get. And he was like, yeah, it's not close enough to me, man. Like I'm just out. And I was like, I was like, dude, like you got, you got to screw loose, like six feet of snow, my happy ass. Like I'm walking away. I'm, I'm abandoning my home. Right. Like I'm just leaving at that point. Everyone can fend for themselves. I'm grabbing a compass. I'm looking whatever direction South is. And I'm walking that direction until it warms up. Um, so Zach is probably, uh, it's only, it's like in the thirties here in DC this morning, maybe up to 40. So Zach's probably wearing shorts and a, uh, Tommy Bahama shirt, uh, cause it's too warm for him. I don't, I don't understand that, but anyway, welcome to the hood, Zach. Glad, uh, glad, glad you made it safely with the fam to the mid Atlantic. Um, you know, Jesse, it was awesome meeting you. Really appreciate your insight and knowledge on uh, on all of these things. And, you know, hopefully we can have both of y'all on here again uh, in 2023 to talk about all of the awesome things that we will be able to do since Rise and Rawa were passed in the 11th hour, probably somewhere around 11:45 p.m. on December 31st and we can finally enjoy the last 14 minutes of our uh various holiday vacations uh because something tells me if it happens that is how it is going to happen because there's no rest for the wicked would you would everyone say that that's probably accurate i'm just want to prep my family for my shitty existence between now and uh now in new year's that expectations there i think and then you know anything else is extra <laughs> super great i'm sure that i'm sure the fam's going to be thrilled so listen y'all have uh, a wonderful thanksgiving wherever wherever that uh, the holiday may take you the guides association sincerely appreciate y'all being on here and sharing your knowledge and we look forward to having you on again uh in 2023 Thank Thanks, you, Tony. Tommy. And thank you for everything you guys do. I mean, you, you do such tremendous work engaging, uh, you know, fishing guides and the recreational fishing community and all of these issues. And we really, truly appreciate it. I think it goes to your point you were saying earlier about how because of all this technology, the average outdoor enthusiast is way more knowledgeable than um, they were, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. And as an angler myself, I see that passion every time I go out and talk to folks. 
Uh, and so giving people the information that they need and the tools that they need to be part of the, the sausage making process is incredibly important. So thank you for, for having us and thank you more generally for the amazing work you do on that front. 